This will be a compare and contrast sermon. Remember you had to write the compare and contrast essays in school. Well, it turns out we do this all the time without thinking about it. We, we make comparisons. We contrast. We put people into categories. And it's not that we're not supposed to do this. It's that our faculties have been damaged by sin so that we don't rightly put people in the correct categories. God gets to categorize. God has the right to categorize. He makes the categories. He defines the categories. He defines how one gets into a category. And the Bible is clear. There's really only one category of Humanity in the Bible. Sinner. One category. The Bible is filled with sinners from A through Z. Adam to Zacchaeus. And we've made our way to Zacchaeus this morning. And the the whole story of the Bible has been about one sinner after another after another. That is what makes Jesus so compelling. Is here's a man who's not a sinner. He's in a category all his own. The only one able to both represent man on the cross and yet endure the wrath of God because he is God. He is man, he is God, he is not a sinner. He gave his life to ransom sinners. So this morning we're going to compare and contrast rich Zacchaeus versus the rich young ruler. Notice they're both rich. Living in a culture that said if you're rich, you must be saved. Unless you're a rich tax collector, then you're not saved. See, man-made rules, man-made categories. Wait a minute, I thought being rich was proof that God was pleased with your righteousness. Well, not for Zacchaeus. He's, he's, uh, he's an outlier. He's, he's rich through dishonest gain. He's not rich because God is blessing him. I guess he's rich because God is not blessing him in some way. See how the rules of society don't always fit. Why was one rich man saved and not the other? Why was one rich man saved and not the other? Really, when we look at humanity then from a biblical perspective, yes, everyone's a sinner, but there's two categories of sinners. Sinners saved by grace... And sinners not saved at all. It's not sinners saved by grace and sinners saved by works. It's sinners saved by grace or sinners not yet saved at all. Those are the only two categories. This morning, each of us needs to discover or have God reveal to us which category we belong in. And if you don't like the category you're in, how do you get to the other category? So let's sing the song together. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. Ah, you want to see the Lord. I started to do Itsy Bitsy Spider this morning because I haven't been in Sunday school for so long that I think you're supposed to do a ladder, but who climbs a tree like that? Zacchaeus may have been a wee little man, but he was a very rich and powerful little man. 
very rich and powerful, the chief tax collector of Jericho. Three major hubs in Israel for tax collection. Capernaum in the north, Israel in the south, and right in between, Jericho, the major highway from north to south. Everybody had to pass through Jericho. It was a major town for trading. It was actually lush. There was water aqueducted in from nearby springs. They had uh, lush sycamore trees. You don't think of sycamore trees in the desert, but they had, obviously, sycamore trees. And the way the whole tax system worked was Rome was, right, doing the taxing, but in a move that's brilliant, if not nefarious, they wouldn't do the tax collecting themselves. They would have the nations that they've conquered do the tax collecting on themselves. So it created internal division and strife among the people that they've conquered, and that keeps the people weak and keeps them from unifying and rising up against the conquering empire. So, you're like, well, as long as nobody signs up to be a tax collector, then the system doesn't work. Well, there's always somebody who will sign up to get rich off the backs of his fellow men, especially maybe somebody who, um, we're using our sanctified imaginations here, but maybe got teased for being little, I don't know, but he found his way to get back at society, I'll show you who's boss, and now he is the big man, the chief tax collector. Not only that, as chief tax collector, the tax collecting franchises were kind of like a, um, a pyramid scheme. So the chief tax collector would tell the middle managers, you need to collect this much in taxes, and they would prepay for their tax franchise up front and then have to collect to break even and then make a profit. So it was up to them, hey, you have to collect for these taxes, but any additional taxes you want to add to that, that's your business. And we'll, we'll give you the muscle and the authority of the Roman Empire to, to do that. And then the middle managers had, had the little guys at the bottom. And so by the time you get down to the bottom of the food chain, they're taxing everything. I mean, you think California's bad. I mean, they're taxing the air you breathe. Do we tax that yet in California? Probably. So you see why all these tax collectors are hated. And you might think the chief tax collector would be shielded a bit because the little guys are bearing the brunt of people's hatred. But they all knew who the main guy was. And Zacchaeus didn't care. He was very rich, very powerful, very despised. And yet something was happening in his heart. Maybe I'm tired of this life. I'm I'm tired of everybody hating me. I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know I'm exploiting people. I know I've made my money dishonestly. The only friends I have are my thugs. I don't have real respect People have to respect me because I have the power to tax. And so maybe he heard about one of his fellow tax collectors, Levi, better known as Matthew. 
Maybe he heard about Matthew's conversion and how he's this disciple of this Jesus of Nazareth, this miracle worker, this great teacher who people are starting to say might be the Messiah. Like, maybe there's hope for me. Because there was no hope at the synagogue for a tax collector, if they even let him in, which they probably didn't. Maybe he heard the parable I just read about the tax collector at the temple. But something certainly was going on in Zacchaeus' heart. And so he ran on ahead because the crowd isn't going to let little Zacchaeus to the front of the line. He's got to figure out another way to see Jesus. So he runs on ahead of the crowd and climbs a sycamore tree, which you have to understand For a Jewish man is completely undignified, dishonorable. You're wearing a dress, for crying out loud. Right? This entire crowd's looking up at you. Now, he doesn't want to call attention to himself, so he's probably up high. He's surrounded by leaves. And he just wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. Oh, for a glimpse of Jesus, my only hope. And Jesus sees Zacchaeus and points him out to the whole crowd. His cover is blown. Zacchaeus! Everybody looks up. Hurry and come down. Come down now. Come down out of that tree. I don't know where the word invitation made it into evangelical parlance. Jesus doesn't invite you to salvation. He commands you to repent and to believe. He is master and Lord. He is Savior. He says, you come down for today I must stay at your house. Not can I stay at your house. I must stay at your house. Perhaps in Jesus' divine omniscience he knew this is one of the elect. This is one of my own. This is one of my sheep. I must stay at your house. No invitation. I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus hurried And came down and received him gladly. There's the understatement of the century. This man had no hope. And now he has the greatest hope. And received him gladly. Now, you think the crowd would be cheering. Wow, if Jesus can save a guy like Zacchaeus, imagine what he can do for us. But no... They were not excited. There was no cheering. There was no applause. There was grumbling. Grumbling. Murmuring. In the Greek, it's one of these words that sound like the sound it makes. Lots of G's in this word. Murmuring. Better translated indignation, smoldering indignation. How could he? Look what they say. 
He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They, they grumbled the same way when he um, allowed the prostitute to wash his feet with her hair. Does he know who she is? It's grumbling. Everyone knew who Zacchaeus was. How could he go to his house? How could Jesus turn away the rich young ruler just a few stories earlier who appeared to be a righteous, law-abiding man, the kind of man every man wants to be, the kind of man every woman wants her son to grow up to be, the kind of man everyone would want their daughter to marry, the rich young ruler. I've kept God's laws all of my youth. Versus Zacchaeus. It's like the rich young ruler was Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Twins, and Zacchaeus was Danny DeVito, right? I'm referencing the movie. I'm not recommending the movie. Every movie from my past that I think is a great movie and want to show my family, we have to, like, turn it off or hit mute like the whole movie So I really don't remember what is in the movie. It's probably not very wholesome, but you get the point. Zacchaeus was the least likely candidate to be befriended by Jesus. But if you think about it, he's the most likely candidate to be saved. The most likely candidate to be saved. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. One rich man knew he needed mercy. The other did not. Didn't think he needed mercy. Good teacher, tell me, what one thing must I do to be saved? He already thought he was saved. The, the good thing was like the cherry on top. I want to pad my account. Little little breathing room just in case. Not that I think I need it, but what what what's that one last thing I need to do? And here's... Zacchaeus, much like the tax collector in the parable, beating on his breast, have mercy on me, a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, he hears all the grumbling, he hears the murmuring, he knows what people are thinking, and he says, and people think this happened back at the house, but this happened on the road. Look, it says, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Zacchaeus was not trying to work his way to heaven. He was demonstrating fruits of repentance. Saving faith will always manifest in fruits of repentance. And sometimes you get those dramatic testimonies, Mine was like an in-betweener testimony. On the outside, I looked like the rich young ruler, but people who really knew my life, I was more, ugh. And when I got saved, all the, ugh, like I didn't have a taste for it anymore. I came home and my wife thought I was abducted by aliens. And salvation will do that to you. When God changes a heart, it's miraculous because the motivations of your heart change and that's where the fruits of repentance come from. But other people live that life where they're like, you know, I was raised in church and I 
I gave my life to Christ like 18 times, you know, every year at VBS. And, and it wasn't until they were like maybe 19 or 20 that they truly realized, I am filthy rotten inside. I care too much about what people think of me. I do good things when people are looking, but in private I have the worst thoughts or, the, or ungodly habits. And there's that testimony too. So when they get saved, you don't really see a dramatic change in their outward obedience. But what you do see is this softening, this humility, this compassion for others who are more obviously lost. And that's a work of God in their heart as well. That's miraculous. You can't manufacture that kind of humility. That has to happen from the inside out of somebody who deeply recognizes how unworthy they truly are. And this is what Zacchaeus is doing. He's, he's so excited by this offer of mercy and grace that he not only wants to make right what he's done wrong, he wants to exceed the requirements of the law. Man, you know, I just, it's like at the end of... Uh, uh, Chris, uh, Charles Dickens, um, help me out, Christmas, Christmas Carol, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, just suddenly, like, inexplicably generous, going above and beyond. The, the law required um, in Leviticus that if you gain anything dishonestly, that you have to make restitution, so pay it back in full, plus one-fifth more. Like you're paying interest on the money that you took dishonestly. Zacchaeus wanted to give back four times what he took. Four times. That, that is amazing, exceeding generosity that can only happen not from a guy who's just trying to buy his way back into heaven. This is a guy who knows he's been saved by grace and he just can't help but be generous. Since his faith was no longer in his money, he didn't need his money anymore. He couldn't, couldn't wait to give it away. So it's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to be rich, not necessarily. Because Jesus didn't say, now good, stop being a tax collector. He said, no, salvation's come to this house this day. Remember when John the Baptist was baptizing and there were some tax collectors and they said well what should we do now and John didn't say well stop being a wretched tax collector he said just collect no more than what you've been ordered to do your job do it honestly do it as under the Lord we, we know we have to collect taxes I mean we all we all understand that we are pitching in so that society can meet the needs of the rest of society. It was just that people saw it as an opportunity to exploit people and make themselves rich. Stop doing that. Just do your job, give glory to God. It matters less that you're rich, and it matters more how you got rich and what you do with your wealth. And if you're putting your trust in your wealth or if you're putting your trust in the mercies of God. 
right? Why did Jesus tell the rich young ruler to sell everything and give it to the poor? Because he knew this man was self-righteous and put his trust in his money. So God said, let's get rid of all of it so you'll have to put your trust in me. And it demonstrated that the man truly didn't love God. He loved his money. Whereas this very wealthy tax collector was already starting to give his money away. He had a new God. He had a new God so he could give his money away. As I was prepping this sermon, one commentator, R. Kent Hughes, said this, perhaps you've stalled in your sanctification. You read your Bible, you pray, you attend church, you listen to sermons, etc., etc. You're doing all the means of grace, all the spiritual disciplines, good for you, but you just feel stalled. In his opinion, from years of being a pastor, one area that is a stickler is generosity. Generosity. And that should be no surprise because our Lord Jesus said, what about money? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money is the great barometer of your heart. You say you believe this, you say you trust this, Let's see where you spend your money. Are you excited to give Sunday morning? Are you excited to give to yet another missions trip? Or are you like, oh, please. Someone else going across the world to tell people about Jesus. Like, if that doesn't excite you, then you need to do a heart check. If you feel compelled that you have to give, you need to do a heart check. Man, if I don't give, I'm going to look petty. If you give begrudgingly, we don't know what people give. All of your financial statements are completely um, anonymous. Only the treasurer knows because she has to print out those statements and mail them to you at the end of the year. But the, the elders, the pastors have no idea who gives what. That's a beautiful thing. We don't want to pastor with any kind of partiality. But the downside to that plan is we don't know who to shepherd in that area either. So we just throw out these general to everybody because everybody struggles with money. Whether you have a lot of it or you have a little of it or you're right in the middle wherever that is. If you're right in the middle money-wise in America, you're richer than 99% of the world. So we're pretty much all rich. And so let Let these passages be a lesson to all of us when it comes to money. Who is your God? Where are you putting your trust? How do I know for sure I'm putting my trust in God? Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? Do you like giving? Have you ever looked for an opportunity to accumulate more money so that you could give to something else in the kingdom? Like, maybe I can work a little overtime. Wow, great, you have that opportunity to work some overtime so that I can give to a missions trip. So that I can help another family in need who doesn't have the opportunity. To give glory to God in that way, that, that, that would be a beautiful thing. 
By the way, a little plug here. If, if, if you do struggle with money, which is everybody, even if you think you don't struggle with money, this man right here, Will Greer, raise your hand, is leading a Financial Peace University class starting June 6th, right around the corner. Great class to take. If you've already taken it, take it again. You'll learn something new. So Zacchaeus was not saved by works. He was saved by faith. His works were evidence of true faith. And the Lord Jesus says to him in front of the crowd, Today salvation has come to this house. And I love this because, hey, he too is a son of Abraham. Now, what does that mean? Son of Abraham, he's, he's by birth a, a Jew, one of God's chosen people. And the Jews said, we are saved because of our heritage. We are saved because of our heritage. And John the Baptist said, don't think you're saved by your heritage. God's going to take an axe to that tree, cut down that root. You can't categorize yourself in that way. Yes, it is special to be a son or daughter of Abraham, but it doesn't automatically save you. No more than being a Baptist or born into a Christian family saves you. But these people were ready to kick Zacchaeus out of the category son of Abraham. Now, God put Zacchaeus in that category by birth. Here, the entire city was ready to kick him outside of a category that God sovereignly put him into. Who do they think they are? Jesus is saying, hey, he's a son of Abraham too. Yeah, you may be a tax collector, but you're all sinners, whether you're a son of Abraham or not. So that's not how you're getting saved. So he's calling their attention to the fact that you just threw away somebody out of the family. And he's reminding them he's a son of Abraham too, but that is not why he is saved. Salvation has come to this house today. He didn't say that about anybody else's house in the crowd. And then he says this, and keep in mind, this is the last individual encounter Jesus is going to have before the triumphal entry and then the cross. Last one. What a way to end his public ministry. He gives his mission statement. Gives his mission statement. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, right? Hey, anyone in the crowd, anyone disagree that this man was lost? Isn't God about saving the lost? That's not like it's a New Testament teaching. That's an Old Testament teaching. God saves the lost. And if you don't see yourself in that category, you're never going to be saved. That's the difference between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. One knew he was lost, the other didn't. One knew he was desperately lost, the other did not. And so salvation came to the one who was lost because now he is found. 
Jesus uses the title Son of Man. That's that messianic title from the book of Daniel. He is calling himself Messiah. And this is the mission statement of Messiah. To come and save that which was lost. For the Son of Man did not come to be served. But to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Both men were rich, except Zacchaeus was despised by society and the rich young ruler was admired by society. Zacchaeus knew he was a sinner and trusted in Jesus for salvation. The young ruler thought he was righteous by his own works and wanted Jesus to affirm his self-righteousness. Even though he was asking Jesus, what must I do to be saved? We get the impression he already thought he was in He just wanted a public declaration from Jesus like, oh, you're good. You've done enough. Instead, Jesus tells him to sell all that he has and give it to the poor. And he wouldn't because he was rich and money was his God. Jesus mercifully revealed this man's idolatry. Look, this is the message we must bring people. It's not come to church I promise you a better life. The message is come to Jesus. He gives life. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. You're lost. You're blind. And so was I until Jesus found me. Come, I'm bringing you to Jesus. He bids you come. He commands you to repent and turn from your self-righteousness, turn from your sin, receive the gift of eternal life. It's free. Zacchaeus performed good works out of thankfulness for mercy found. And the rich young ruler wanted to do good works to solidify his salvation. That's the difference. And this makes perfect sense based on what Nathan preached last week. Raise your hand if you were here last Sunday. If you weren't, please listen to this sermon. Either go on the Facebook live stream or listen to the podcast. Such an important sermon on the name of God, Yahweh, which is the verb of being in Hebrew, Yahweh. We translate it, I am, in the Bible, but it's really better translated, I will be. It's in the imperfect tense. I will be who I will be. God can't help but be who he is. He will be who he will be. Well, who is that? And he reveals himself to Moses and he says, as he's passing by Moses and Moses is hiding in the cleft of the rock, Yahweh, Yahweh, which in your Bible is Lord, Lord. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Oh, This is a God of mercy. And yet, at the same time, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Nobody's getting away with nothing. Say, well, how can God be a God of mercy and a God of justice? You look at the cross. Look at the cross. God's justice collides with his mercy perfectly 
The due penalty that justice called for poured out on Jesus so that Jesus could pour out his mercy on us. This is who God is. And I I was listening to Nathan's sermon like he said from the pulpit, I'm never really gone now. I, I can watch the live stream. And I was thinking, where else have I heard, Lord, Lord? Because in the New Testament, we don't see the name of Yahweh, as Nathan showed us from the Bible, that name Yahweh is now the name Lord in the New Testament. Lord, Lord. Think about that. Where have I heard Lord, Lord in the New Testament? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh Uh-oh, they know the name of God. They profess the name of God. They do good works in the name of God. They cast out demons in the name of God. They prophesy by the name of God. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Huh, what does that mean? That's a reference. See the underlying part there? That's a reference to a passage in the Old Testament from Psalm 6. Let's look there. You can look on the screen. Psalm 6, the Psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. It's It's a psalm crying out for mercy. Not, hey, look at my good works that I did in your name. It's a psalm of David, a man after God's own heart, crying out for mercy. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord. For my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long return, O Lord. Rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. That's a heart of somebody who knows Jesus. My eye is wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do Iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. See Jesus making the connection there. Who are the people who call him Lord, Lord, and seem to know him, but will be denied entrance into the kingdom? Those who are not crying out for mercy, but putting their trust in their works. See, the categories aren't churched and unchurched. Because evidently there's people in church who don't know the Lord. And there's people outside of the church who do know the Lord who really need to go to church. And maybe they don't have a local church. Maybe they haven't heard of the church. Maybe they're overseas where a church hasn't been planted yet. But if they know the Lord, it's because they know Him as a God who pours out loving kindness, grace, and mercy on undeserving sinners. So what kind of person are you? I'll tell you the kind of person God is looking for. I've been preaching this to my own heart. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? He's putting us in our place. Like you could really do enough works to impress God. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. 
Last week, Nathan rightly read Philippians 2. Jesus humbled himself on the cross, and then God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, which is not Jesus. The name which is above every name is Lord. Jesus is God. That is God's name, Lord. Jesus humbled himself on a tree And then he was highly exalted. Zacchaeus humbled himself in a tree. And then he was highly exalted. He had a place with Jesus. And so the question is, why are you climbing trees? Is it so everyone can see you? Or is it so you can see Jesus? Is it so everyone can see you? Or so that you can better see Jesus? application questions I am concerned for myself and for the body of Christ that as people who profess faith in Jesus and exalt his name for him forgiving our sins that we are absolutely horrible at admitting and confessing those sins we just kind of tell everyone generically I'm a sinner yeah me too yeah how so And I find often that nobody can answer that question right away or they don't want to answer that question right away. Well, surely I must sin. Really tell me the last time you were wrong and had to admit you were wrong. Tell me the last time you asked somebody for forgiveness. How did that go? When was the last time you had a Zacchaeus moment? And you know what? The people who have recently admitted they're wrong, felt the burden and weight of their sin and their self-righteous facade fall off. And so we're afraid to do it, but beloved, there is great freedom and glory to God on the other side of confessing your sins. Well, what if they don't forgive me? Well, that's between them and God. And God said, by the measure you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you. And it's sinning against that person, assuming they won't forgive you. Oh, so you sinned against them, and then you won't ask them for forgiveness because they probably won't forgive me. Gee, let's pile sin on top of your sin, assuming somebody will be unforgiving. If they know Jesus... They know they've been forgiven of much sin. Let's be a people that is really compelling to the world. People quick to admit our wrong, quick to confess sin, quick to cry out for mercy. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. I know we live in a culture where if you admit you're wrong, it will be used against you forever it's election season you never hear anyone running for office who says hey vote for me i'm a humble guy i've done this wrong this wrong this wrong but i've made amends and no never going to happen it's usually one candidate pointing out all the wrongs of the other candidate and then the other candidate oh yeah well not not as bad as he is and we're just kind of stuck voting for the lesser of two self-righteous But not so in the church. Should not be this way in the church. Oh, the beautiful moment Zacchaeus 
got to enjoy is waiting for all of us every time we confess we are sinners and receive forgiveness. I'm going to pray for you and you pray for me. This is as hard for me as it is for you. I'm a stubborn, prideful, unworthy sinner just like you are. I don't like admitting I'm wrong. But I truly believe this is what's going to catapult this church to the next, to the next level. This is what is holding us back. Father God, we are sinners saved by grace. We sing about it. We exalt your name. We wear crosses around our neck. And then we don't want to admit that we are weak sinners. Desperately needing your mercy every day. And your word tells us your mercy is new each morning. So will you help us run to the throne of grace together? If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, Lord. May that be us, your people. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Amen. God bless you, my fellow sinners saved by grace.